Uh, today we're going to be moving on to Luke chapter 18, the verses 35 through 42. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 18, 35 through 42. The, the Bible, as you're turning there, uh, the Bible presents for us several different motifs or several different themes of the Christian life to its page. And what I mean by, by motifs or themes is that the Christian life is presented in relation to or in comparison to various things. For example, in some places the Christian life is likened to a runner running a race or an athlete in competition. And in several places, in Hebrews 12, it's described in that way, running the race, running in a way as, as to win the prize in our Christian life. In other places, it's we're described as Christians uh, being soldiers, in a sense, as those fighting the good fight of faith. In other places, we're described as children of God, emphasizing uh, our adoption as children, for those of us who are in Christ. We are indeed children of God, adopted love through the sacrifice of grace. And it's pretty easy for us, I think, to relate to these different kinds of motifs, these themes with relation to the Christian life. It's easy for us to relate to these kinds of descriptions because they appeal to us for various reasons. I think even non-Christians can, to a certain sense, a certain extent, see the appeal in being described or having our lives described in terms of as an athlete competing and winning the prize, or uh, or as a soldier, someone who's fighting the good fight of faith and, and going into battle for the sake of the Lord. And we can sing songs like, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. But, uh, but we, we can identify with these certain things, or even to be a child of God, even a, a non-believer uh, can see the value in that and the, the value of being loved and cared for and even disciplined in that way as a child of God. And each of these kind of motifs is, is correct and proper and helps teach us how we should live in light of Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. But in our text today, we're given, uh, in a sort of indirect way, a kind of motif of the Christian life that uh, really doesn't compute or sit well with our society and with the culture at large. In fact, most people, after hearing what I'm going to say today, if they are not Christians or maybe unfamiliar with what it means to be a follower of Christ or, or to obey and listen to him, might think that it sounds rather unappealing. But, as you can see from my title, right there, uh, is that there is a certain kind of motif that's presented here that we as Christians, as a church, ought to be a community of beggars. This motif as a beggar, as one who is helpless, one who is in need, one who can do nothing for himself. That's why I've, I've described my title this way, because all those other things Soldiers for the Lord. We are fighting the good fight of faith. We are children of God, love, cared for, redeemed. We are running the race. We are called to, to pursue Christ, to run after Him, to pursue godliness, all of these things, endurance. But for our purposes today, and what our text brings to our attention today, is this idea that the Christian community can accurately and should be accurately described. As a community of beggars. As a community of people, a collection of people who see 
their desperation and their need for Christ. Their desperation and their need for mercy, much like the man in our text today. So with that being said, let's look at our text, Luke chapter 18, verses 35 and 36. As he drew near to the other day, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came here, he asked him, what do you want to do to me? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful and profound story of this blind beggar and Jesus' sight. I pray today, Lord, that as I preach, by your grace, you would do some mighty things this morning in this text. I pray, Lord, that, that you would guide my words, that you would open the ears and the, the hearts of those who are here today to hear from you in your text and truth. I pray, Lord, that you would keep me and all of us today faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this story in Luke, chapter 18, is a beautiful story that Luke and other gospel writers see fit as led by the Holy Spirit to record for us. And as we seek to, to really mine this story for all of the treasure and, and the beauty that there is to be found within it, I think a, a helpful way to do that for us today is going to be to break it down and look at each character in the story individually. So with that, I want us to start by looking at this method. Point number one, the beggar. Luke doesn't give us the name of this beggar as he writes, but Mark, when he writes his gospel, as he writes his version of the story, does record this man's name for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. We see that his name was Bartimaeus, commonly known as one Bartimaeus. And we really know nothing for sure about Bartimaeus other than what we're given in this text and in the text of Mark. Or in uh, Matthew, which gives us very little uh, beyond what we have here in Luke. We know that he was a blind man and that he was healed by Jesus. That is almost all we know about this man. But for the purpose of the lesson that God wants us to learn here today, for the purpose of, of God revealing to us, that's all the information that we need. And we know that's all we need because that's all he gives us. This man. Bartimaeus was located near the city gate alongside the road, a very common place for beggars and for cripples at that time to be. They would sit at this, on the side of the road, near the gate, begging for money, begging for anything they could get from people coming to and from the city. We know from the start of our story that, that this is the city of Jericho. Jericho was a very large, very 
all of these people who would come from around to do business in Jericho would be coming in through the city gate. Would be coming along this road, and so beggars, cripples, people who were in need, would sit along the roadside in this place so that they could get the attention of anyone who was coming in and out of the city to do business, or those who were coming perhaps to worship in the temple or to make sacrifices. This, for him, was the best place to get in contact with people who might be willing and able to help to give money. And that's what he was begging for. He, along with any other beggars who were there, would have been asking for money from people who were passing by. Would have been asking for a way to sustain themselves, to, to buy their, their needs, their food, their clothes, whatever they need to sustain themselves. And yet, we see in the story something fascinating. And that when this man finds out who it is that's passing by, he stops asking for money. This man doesn't ask for money from Jesus, nor does he ask for food from when this man knew that Jesus was passing by, he knew that someone was passing by that could give him something of far more valuable, even far more valuable than any riches that anyone could offer. Already we see this is a demonstration of the faith that was already present in this man. Faith was already in this man's heart, even in how he identified Jesus as the son of David. This was very different from the way the person in the crowd identified Jesus when he asked who was coming by. The person in the crowd simply calls him Jesus of Nazareth. A very common way to explain who this person was. If you're familiar with the person, then you, you would acknowledge who they were by saying where they're from. It's a very generic title that you would give to anyone, just connecting them with the place they're from. We do things like that even today. I, I know as, as pastors, as, as people in the church, if I'm talking to someone about another pastor, I might say, oh yeah, you know, Jackson from First Southern, and just identify that person with where they're from. Or, or if you have friends around the, around the country or around the state or whatever, you might say, oh yeah, uh, Aaron up in Indianapolis or whatever. A very common, place, common way to identify people with connections to where they're from. But that was not so with this man when he learned who was passing by. He calls Jesus by the title that was designated and would have been understood as referring to him as the promised Messiah. And every Jew present would have recognized this. His name, his calling of him as the son of David, would have clearly been understood by the Jews present as a reference to the Messiah. This man was not just saying Jesus, the God of Nazareth. He was saying Jesus, the Savior, the one who has come. Though this man had never met Jesus, word of him had reached his ears. He heard of all the wonders, all the miracles, all the works that Jesus was doing. And it became clear to him that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the line of David. Jesus, the son of David, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The one that sent from the Father to rescue his people. And even though Jesus had not yet encountered this blind man, the Holy Spirit was already doing the work of opening the eyes of his heart. He already understood, having never met Jesus, that this was the Messiah. This beggar, though he was blind, saw clearly who Jesus was, and he acted on it. This man might have been blind physically, but spiritually, his eyes were wide open. 
be understood even better than the Pharisees, than the Jewish leaders, the religious elites of his time, the educated class. He knew even better than they who this man was. He saw more clearly than they did. He understood that Jesus was the Messiah. His blind sight, as some commentators have called it, was demonstrated by the fact that he cried out repeatedly for Christ to have mercy on him and to heal him. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for food. Though he needed those things, though that's why he was there in the first place, because he needed those things to survive, to live. The very things he needed to sustain himself physically, he cast aside for something that he saw of much more value, knowing what Jesus could do. All of those things would have been insignificant and a foolish request to one who could grant him his sight. He knew what Jesus could do, and he cried out for mercy. In this, we see true faith on display. We see true, genuine faith of this man who recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, knew what he could do, and forsook all other things, even his earthly duties, to cry out for something that he needed and he wanted. What we also see on display here is a persevering faith, a faith that endures, a faith that has legs, a faith that is persistent. Now, I would argue, and I would, I would make it clear that all true and genuine faith is persevering faith. Anyone who truly believes will persevere to the end. But we see that uh, that this is the fact that's demonstrated here by this man crying out repeatedly for him. Repeatedly, he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me, even when others try to shut him up. His understanding, his faith in Jesus, was not going to let anyone or anything stop him from calling out for Christ, from calling out for mercy. Because he knew Jesus was his only hope of ever reaching. This was his chance. This was his shot. And it would be foolish to not try. That's why the text says that he cried out. The word used here to describe this crying out in the Greek is the same word that's commonly used when referring to someone who is insane or even demon-possessed. Or sometimes referring to women in childhood when they would cry out. This is not a controlled Raising of the voice. This is not just trying to get someone's attention across the room without getting everyone else's attention. This is the voice of someone who is desperate. The voice of someone who doesn't care what the people around them think. Crying out desperately, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The kind of cries that if we heard someone crying out in this service right now, we would be weirded out. But this man didn't care. This man was desperate, and so he cried out, in a way that demonstrated mercy. He cried out in a way that also served mercy as an example for us. So that's this thing, Bartimaeus. The second character that I would introduce us to is actually a collection of characters, and that is the crowd. Or number two is the crowd. As we've already seen, there are at least some in the crowd who have failed to recognize the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. To them, he is simply Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. He is a man who's done some awesome things. A man who's maybe a great teacher worth following. I mean, they're following him to see what he's going to be next. 
blind beggar Bartimaeus, and they say, it says in verse 39, those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They rebuked him for crying out for mercy, demonstrating the fact that these people had no patience for this man, no understanding of his plight, of his situation. They had no patience for this man, and they assumed that Jesus had none either. No time for him. After all, Jesus had bigger and better and more important things to get to. He was on way to Jerusalem at the end. He didn't have time to spend on this blind beggar on the side of the road crying out for mercy. Demonstrate in this, this is a demonstration of their hardness of heart, their lack of understanding. Their lack of understanding not only of his plight and of his situation, but of their own situation as sinners. And we've all encouraged people, or we've all encountered people like this, right? Discouraging people like those in this crowd. People who would discourage our desire, our desire, our passions for the Messiah's grace. You see no reason to cry out for mercy with such fervor and, and so obnoxiously as they considered this man to be. These people felt this way because they didn't fully understand their need. They are therefore unable to comprehend their own helplessness. The fact that, yes, this man was blind spiritually, he was in a state of helplessness, but they were blind spiritually. They failed to see it, they failed to understand. They could not comprehend their helplessness, their desperate need for mercy. In short, these people are unregenerate. They are lost. They are destitute. Following Jesus for some sort of surface level reasons, but nothing more. Failing to see who he was and their need of a Messiah. Jesus himself says to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Well, here's the truth of all of this. That all are sick. All are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, in fact. But only some recognize their blindness. Only some recognize their sickness, their need of a Savior, and cry out to Him. And once you have, like this blind man, come to the realization of your desperate need of a Messiah, what more is there to do? What else can you do but cry out in desperation? Have mercy. What else is there to do? But the problem with this crowd is that they failed to understand, failed to see their own blindness, their own deadness, their own hardness of heart. But how is it that that can happen? How do we go from a state of being spiritually blind, dead in fact in our sin, the Bible tells us, without hope, and unaware of it, thinking we're fine? That's most of the world. They're walking around thinking they're fine, that they don't need help, that they don't need a Savior, that they don't need forgiveness. And they're happy with that. So how do we go from that to a place where we see our need of a Savior? Was blind Bartimaeus somehow so much more intelligent than all the other people in the crowd? No, he was not. The difference between Bartimaeus and these people is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. This doctrine that says, we who were once dead in our sins have had life breathed back into 
expose our need of a Savior. It is only done by the work of regeneration that God does in you. This is what Ezekiel was talking about, the problem. In Ezekiel 36, 26-27, he delivers the words of the Lord like this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a work that God does in us to remove our hard heart and to replace it with a, a beating heart, a heart of flesh, one that recognizes our sinfulness, our wickedness, our blindness. It's a work that has to be done by God. Consider also John chapter 3 as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. What does he say to Nicodemus must happen if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? He says you must be born again. You must be born again. This is regeneration. This new birth. To go from, from being dead in your sin to alive. This is the second birth. Not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth that Jesus proclaims to Nicodemus. And consider for me the idea of birth. Who of us in here had anything to contribute to our birth when we were born? None of us. None of us was inside the womb communicating with the doctor going, all right, you tell me when you pull, I'll push, and we'll, we'll get this done together. I'm going to lather up some oil and slide right out. That's not the way it worked, right? No pregnancy has ever happened this way. No child ever contributed any sort of effort to his or her being born. It simply happened, right? And as beautiful as natural physical birth is, spiritual birth is far more beautiful. And in the same way, it is a work that God does within us to breathe life into our lungs, to create something new where there was something old and dead and wretched. This is what happened in the life and the heart of this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Not because of anything particularly special in him, but because God chose to save him. To breathe life back into his lungs. To open his eyes to his need of a Savior. That this was the man he was looking for. This was something the crowd simply did not have. Their dreadful estate had not yet been made free to him the way it had. Therefore, we see a contrast between a blind beggar who is, has great spiritual sight and a crowd who is spiritually blind. But then we see our third character, that is Jesus the Messiah. One of the most amazing lines in this place <coughs> in this passage comes in verse 40. And Jesus stopped. After hearing the cries of faith from this poor wretched, blind beggar, Jesus did what God always does. He showed him mercy and grace. These genuine cries of, for mercy, for hope, for grace, fell on ears that heard and that listened and that responded. That's always what happens. What a picture we are given of our Lord and Savior. For Jesus knows what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. Which is very soon. Jesus is super close to Jerusalem. He's on mission. 
and not all that far from carrying out the final scene of his work here on earth. Yet when this beggar, a nobody in the world's eyes, cries out to him for mercy, he stops and gives him his full I like the way John MacArthur puts it when he said that the spotlight of divine revelation suddenly focused directly in on this beggar. In the midst of Jesus about to bring his ministry on earth to a close, about to come to the climax in Jerusalem of Passion Week, stops everything, drops what he's doing, and gives this man his full attention. It's amazing when you consider where we're at in the story. Jerusalem is only about 17, 17 miles away from Jericho. And in Luke, we're only a half a chapter away from this triumphal entry into Jerusalem when Passion Week starts. We are so close to this scene, and yet Jesus stops, drops what he's doing, stops walking on the road, says, forgive his full attention to this blind beggar. What hope that brings to us, right? There was never a more important moment in Jesus' life, a more important thing that he was doing than his journey to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. And yet, even there, he gives his full attention to a blind beggar. So finally, now that we've looked at all three characters of this story, I want us to consider the resolve that happens. In our story, Jesus restores this man's eyesight in an instant. He does so with very little drama, with no showmanship, but simply with a word. You could miss it if you go over it too fast. The man says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. And that was it. There was no common circumstance. There was no confetti. There was no strobe lights or fog machines. There was no blanket or jacket used to hit this man. The Lord spoke, and he was healed, and he was healed completely. In an instant, which should give you a clue as to whether or not a healing is good or authentic or true, if there's no permanent healing, if there's no full healing, or if the healing requires strobe lights and fog machines, then it's probably not a true healing. Jesus heals this man in an instant, demonstrating the power that he has over all things, even over physical sickness. He then tells this man, Bartimaeus, after he restores his sight, your faith has made you well. This phrase is not meant merely to communicate that this man was made physically well, though Jesus did make him physically well. But the fact that Jesus specifically identifies this man's faith as the conduit by which healing has come indicates a spiritual reality a spiritual healing that was true of this man, not merely a physical healing. In this instance, he was healed physically by Jesus. His eyes were restored. His sight had returned. But spiritual healing, which was as much greater need, as is the case for all of us, had already come through this man's faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior. But there is still a powerful lesson for us to learn, a powerful spiritual lesson that's being taught through this very tangible, very physical, very real situation and healing. 
us on the fact that God does what he does. In this story, we're presented a situation where this man cries out for mercy to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus responds and grants him mercy and grace and has compassion on him. That should hit us hard. That Jesus responds to this man's cries for mercy. There is a simple and profound reality on display in this passage that does not need to contradict our understanding of the sovereignty of God over salvation. For he is sovereign over salvation. We see from this beautiful text the truth that for anyone who genuinely cried out to God for mercy, recognizing their brokenness, recognizing their sin, he will grant them grace and restoration. Anyone who genuinely cries out for mercy will receive it from Christ. That's the end of it. And yes, we know that what did it take to get that person to a genuine understanding of their need for Christ? It was the Spirit's work within them. Absolutely. The work of regeneration that we've already talked about in our passage today. But let us not lose sight of the fact that what happens in this place when this man has been brought to the point where he sees his need and he sees the Messiah who has the answer, he cries out for mercy. And the Lord answers. If you are here in this place today, and the Lord is revealing to you your brokenness, your need for mercy, your need for a Savior tonight, implore you, cry out along with Bartimaeus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on you. If you are at that point, don't worry about how you got to that point right now. If you have been brought to that point, cry out for mercy, and he is faithful, he will grant you mercy. Because let me tell you, you are in need of mercy. And trust the word of God, that he is merciful, that he is compassionate, that the same Jesus Christ, who showed mercy to this man, stopped what he was doing, went to this man, showed him mercy, healed his blindness, is alive and well on the throne today, doing the same for us. And then notice what happened. After this man was healed, after the Lord healed him, he did not go back to his home. He didn't go about his normal business having been healed. The Bible tells us that he followed Jesus. In fact, the book of Mark adds the detail that when the Lord called him, he cast off his clothes and stood up and and says he jumped up and went after Jesus. His clothes, likely one of the most important possessions that he owned, the thing that kept him warm on cold nights, what probably served as his blanket or even his pillow when he slept. This man who had very little, perhaps nothing beyond his clothes, cast it off. Cast off his most important possession for the sake of following Christ. He left his place on the side of the road left it behind him and set out following in faithless and obedience to the song. And think about just how amazing it must have been for this man. We're not told how long he was blind. Perhaps from birth, perhaps he, he had some sort of disease that made him go blind. We don't know how long he was blind. But what we do know is that this man, after receiving his sight, followed Jesus. And what an amazing First few days after receiving his sight, some of the first stuff that he got to witness 
was the Messiah doing what this man had faith and confidence that he was going to do. The redeeming and saving work of the Messiah was one of the first things that this man got to witness with his new side. What a glorious thing that must have been. He got a front row seat to see it all happen. He got to be there for the triumphal entry. He, he was there to see Jesus on trial. He witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And then he got to experience the joy and the amazing, amazing fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Brand new eyes to see his Savior, his Messiah, doing the work of the Messiah. But this cry for mercy of blind Bartimaeus is not simply for those who have never cried out for mercy before. It's easy for us to think that it is. It's easy for us to think that, well, I've already asked for mercy and forgiveness, and I've received it, so I don't really have to do that anymore. This is for new believers, right? This is for babes in the faith. But I would argue that's not the case. This crying out, this posture of crying out for mercy, of desperation, of our should mark the Christian's life for all time as we consider our flesh. As long as we are in the flesh, we are in desperate need of mercy from a loving and kind and gracious Savior. Mm -hmm. We are, in fact, a community of beggars. We are not here to show people how great you can be if you come to Christ, how awesome it is to have your sins forgiven and move past that. We are here to, to demonstrate to people that even though we are weak, he is merciful to us. We continue to cry out for mercy. No matter how far along you are in the Christian faith, no matter how much maturity you have in Christ, no matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much you pray, no matter what, if you are here today, you are breathing, you are in need of mercy. Each and every one of us today to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. It is only in this posture that access to the Lord is available. Remember the tax collector earlier in this chapter that Jacob preached on a couple weeks ago, who went up and prayed along with the Pharisees. The Pharisee who prayed, thanked God for, for how good he was, told him how he fasted and did all these great things. And this tax collector who stood off beating his chest, unable to even look up, said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the posture that the Lord gives justification to. The text goes on to say that this man, the tax collector, he went home that day justified, not the Pharisee. The one who comes to the Lord asking for mercy is the only one. We as a church together are going to cry out for mercy after we take the Lord's Supper. There's a song that we sing during Redeemer Fellowship Church, Son of David. Some of you are familiar. If you've been coming to Redeemer Fellowship for very long at all, you're probably familiar with the song. But this is exactly what this song is calling us to do. It is calling us to the posture of this blind beggar named Father Mass, crying out to Jesus. We are blind, we are helpless, there's nothing that we can do except cry out. So today,
day as we as we close. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take a little cup of it, and then we're going to sing some bad songs to the Lord. I'll leave it with you. As you sing, don't just read the words and sing it because of the words, but consider the reality of what is being said. Ask the Lord to make that the cry of your heart, that you would become one who, who is like blind Bartimaeus in the posture of begging for mercy, knowing that. Lord, I need it on an hourly, on a, on a moment to moment basis. I need your mercy. For us to think otherwise is weak. Lord, every breath I take in and breathe back out is a mercy. It is a grace. And for that, I thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would see not only our need, our reality of helplessness on our own, but Lord, that you would see the truth of the gospel. That when we do cry out, you allow us access to you.